born in 1954 in Tokmak, Kyrgyzstan. Hamid Ismailov is an Uzbek journalist and writer who was forced to leave Uzbekistan in 1992 due to what the state dubbed unacceptable democratic tendencies. He came to the United Kingdom where he took a job with the BBC World Service where he worked for 25 years. In addition to journalism, Ismailov is a prolific writer of poetry and prose and his books have been published in Uzbek, Russian, French, German, Turkish, English and other languages. His work is still banned in Uzbekistan. He is the author of many novels including The Railway, Hostage to Celestial Turks, Googling for Soul, The Underground, A Poet and Bin Laden, Manasji, The Devil's Dance. He is a translator too. He has translated Russian and Western classics into Uzbek and Uzbek and Persian classics into Russian and several Western languages. In this conversation, he spoke about the process of writing, translations, about the culture of Central Asia and his recent novel, Manasji. In Manasji, the writer interrogates the intersection between the tradition and modernity. The story starts with a former radio presenter interpreting one of his dreams and uh, thinks that he has been initiated into the world of spirits as a Manasji. one of the kirgis bards and healers reciting manas the longest human epic consisting nearly of a million verses manasjis are revered as people who are connected with supernatural forces traveling to a mountainous village populated by tajiks and kirgis he instead witnesses the full scale of the epic's wrath on his life Dr. Hamid, uh, welcome to our podcast, uh, Harshniyam. Thank you for having me. It's, it's really an honor to have you with us today. You lived in various countries. Uh, you lived in Uzbekistan and uh, I believe near, somewhere near Tashkent. And uh, you lived in Moscow for some time and uh, you are living in Europe right now. All these uh, living experiences in different countries, right? how it has enriched your storytelling and uh, thematic choices thank you for inviting me so yes you are absolutely right uh, in fact it started with my childhood in my childhood i lived uh, quite a nomadic life because of my parents so i lived in kyrgyzstan in uzbekistan in kazakhstan partly in tajikistan so uh, i lived in the whole central asia Uh, being uh, sort of, you know, exp- experiencing the uh, different cultures of Central Asia, different uh, languages of Central Asia. Uh, and that, in a way, enriched me from the very childhood, I think. And as you are saying, in my uh, adult life, I continued this uh, nomadic style of life, uh, though I never... Uh, dreamt myself or forced myself to move from places to places but somehow my destiny moved me uh, throughout the world you know so uh, not wishing uh, I found myself uh, kicked out of my country uh, then uh, for three months I came to France to Uh, to sort of escape the storm, uh, as they say, but uh, these three months uh, lasted now 30 years, you know, and uh, uh, over these 30 years I was uh, living in France, in Germany, in uh, Italy, in uh, United Kingdom, in Czech Republic, so in many places. Obviously, uh, any person who is facing different cultures is affected by these cultures because uh, you develop your uh, new sort of affiliations, uh, new links, and so on and so forth. So 
In that sense, obviously, uh, I was enriching my uh, experience as a writer and storyteller because different countries are telling uh, stories differently. For example, uh, you know, in the former Soviet Union, uh, what was very important, the very important thing was the concept of the thing, you know, the theory of the thing. So everything was about the... Uh, though uh, they uh, professed materialism, but everything was about the ideology. So in that sense, everything should have been explained through the ideas. Uh, whereas, for example, in England uh, or in United Kingdom, uh, it's very much about your own experiences and your practices. It's more about the pragmatism, you know, and skepticism. So it's completely different outlook at the world and therefore different storytelling techniques as well. So in that sense, yes, I was blessed uh, to witness different storytelling techniques and I have tried to use them in my work. You lived away from uh, your native land, that is Uzbekistan, in exile for most of your life. Um, how it influenced your writing? So, as I am saying, different cultures are uh, enriching me with different storytelling techniques. Uh, there are different type of writers. For example, there are writers who are writing about their so uh, ethnic uh, side, let's say, in different language. Uh, you know, the famous uh, books, for example, written by Afghani, Turkish, uh, Arab writers in English, which is absolutely fine, or Indian writers for the same sake, yeah, uh, written in English. So they are bringing to the feast their own culture in different language. My take is a bit different. My take is, uh, you know, because I was uh, experiencing different cultures and different languages, uh, my take is that language comes with culture, you know, and if I am writing in English, so I'm writing not about, let's say, Central Asian realities, but about the, uh, the same Central Asians in England, for example, you know, for example, uh, one of my novels, uh, Gaia or Queen of the Ants, is about an, uh, a, a lady who ended up her life, Central Asian lady, one of the first ladies of Central Asia, who ended her uh, life and uh, old age in England, for example, in Eastbourne. Uh, or I wrote a novel in English, which is called Amber, or uh, Good uh, Morning uh, Midnight, which is about uh, uh, an Indian lady living her life in Britain, for example, you know, and uh, these kind of uh, things which are sort of, you know, come together with the language rather than, you know, different culture coming with different language. You have written your novels in Russian, Uzbek and English too. So, how do you perceive the impact of language uh, when you convey emotions and certain cultural nuances? In fact, I've uh, uh, sort of answered in my previous uh, answer as well, but uh, that is the uh, an interesting dilemma for myself, you know, why I'm writing a particular uh, story, for example, in Uzbek, why I'm writing in Russian, why I'm writing in English or in French. Uh, so, I was always puzzled with it. Uh, so, Initially, I had a theory that, for example, because my family life was in Uzbek, so maybe I'm writing about my childhood in Uzbek. But it turned out that uh, The Railway, my first novel, uh, which is about my childhood in a way uh, and traditional life, was written in Russian rather than in Uzbek. So I was quite uh, puzzled by that one. Then I thought maybe professional life, which was in Russian, is written in Russian. No, once again, I found that uh, some of my novels about uh, my professional, my adult life are written in Uzbek. So uh, it was quite confusing, you know, but ultimately... Uh, 
it comes to the you know conversation who are you conversing with you know who is your writer correspondent listener uh, what's your message about because some messages they work in uh, certain languages uh, some messages they don't work in uh, certain languages too uh so therefore i think the uh it's a package you know culture comes with language and novel comes with a certain language from the very beginning i can't imagine that for example a novel which i'm which i have written in russian i could have repeated in uzbek it's completely different uh, sort of set of tools set of uh, you know set of colors set of musicality set of everything so uh, i think my answer is that certain uh, languages uh, or certain novels of mine come with certain languages from the very beginning your background in journalism Uh, how it influenced uh, your fiction writing because uh, i mean to ask you how do you balance this objective reporting style of a journalist uh, and uh, again you have to act as a creative storyteller too how do you balance uh, these two in a way i became a journalist quite late at my 40s you know and sometimes i wish that uh, uh, i should have become journalist maybe earlier which would have saved me from uh, you know excessive usage of uh, palette excessive usage of language lots of digressions in my uh, initial novels but on the other hand that is the strength of those novels as well you know uh, in a way you know they are kind of uh, lawrence stern's tristram shandy you know excessive in language in beauties in uh, sort of embellishment so uh, maybe uh, that was the certain period of my uh, creativity but what journalism gave uh, me is uh, you know uh, generally english language what uh, english gave me uh, economy economy you know and accuracy because uh, you know the longest form in radio journalism for example for us was a package which uh, should last let's say 3 5 minutes only if you're saying a dispatch or telling the dispatch so you have to squeeze in all your thoughts in one minute you know <laughs> sometimes you you you are asked to squeeze everything into one uh, sort of you know quote so basically you are squeezing all you could uh, your knowledge into couple of language a uh, couple of sentences so in that sense you know this hemingwayian uh, school uh, taught me to be very very uh, accurate and economical in language and i find that my english novels uh, as opposed to russian or uzbek novels they are much more uh, short breath uh, novels you know so i'm not digressing too much you know i'm straight to the point in a way when it comes to the process of writing creative process of writing Uh, some writers uh, they say that uh, they have a very clear plan before they start writing and uh, some people say that uh, they will discover the story as they go along what is your approach how do you balance uh, the structure and spontaneity spontaneity while you write i have to go to my uh, <laughs> uh, uh, myself uh, history in a way yeah, when i was young and uh, i used to write lots of poetry uh, my writing season would come in the spring you know with the uh, yeah with the uh, nature waking up and so on and so forth so uh, now uh, as pushkin said once famously uh, my old age makes me lean towards the prose so uh, in that sense my writing season starts with the clock change the uh, autumn 
for clock change and last through the winter to the spring you know so when the long uh, evening hours the dark evening hours give me a chance to concentrate in writing uh, sort of you know in uh, uh, during the long nights so in that sense in that sense uh, summertime in a way, is a preparatory time for me when I am uh, thinking about the next novel or project or whatever it is, yes? And in that sense, yes, I am preparing a kind of, uh, a, you know, a kind of project of this novel in my head. Uh, I'm very meticulous in that one. I write uh, sort of, you know, notes. I make lots of schemes, you know, so everything touches everything. So everything is working in a way. There is nothing spare in the novel and so on and so forth. And then I start to write. But writing, once again, is like a snowball, you know. You start to write, for example, once I started to write uh, one novel, which I made in my mind, yeah, but writing 50 pages, all of a sudden I realized that the tonality is repeating my previous novel, which wasn't uh, my plan, you know, and therefore I tore apart this uh, uh, 100 or 50 pages, you know, and started everything uh, anew, afresh. So when the tonality was completely different and tonality was exactly what I wanted. Uh, so it's like a snowball, you know, uh, you've got something, a core of the thing within your head, but then uh, you allow uh, the characters to act, uh, the sort of plot to act, uh, but at the same time, you keep control of the things as well. So, uh, as I said, there are no spare things. At the very end, when I finish the first draft of the novel, I print uh, uh, and uh, then uh, sort of, you know, print in long lists, you know, and hang the novel on my wall to see uh, the novel in wholeness. And then I start to like a sort of, you know, an artist to see where it's uh, thick, where it's thin, where I should add something kind of compositionally, uh, sort of, you know, uh, uh, amending it. And then finally, so uh, after that one, I start to read it on the uh, application, which turns it into the text once again. So it's another editing uh, exercise for the musicality of the thing, because when you are reading it, you notice the musical uh, falsehood, for example, you know, the mm, all kind of uh, musical sort of, you know, mistakes or whatever. Uh, so that is the process. The, it is a long process. So ultimately, the product should be good in terms of composition. Everything should work. Plot should work. Characters should be uh, sort of, you know, logical and developed and uh, sort of alive, yeah? Not the death born. So everything should be in place. So and the musicality and the tonality of the thing should be there too. Robert Chandler, one of the best uh, translators of the Russian literature into English, because what he does, he reads his translations to his wife, and the wife is listening as a listener and the editor for the orality, for the musicality, for the logic, as a listener. You know, the problem with listening versus reading is that listening is much, much older skill which the humankind developed, you know. All our history, we were listening to the things rather than reading. Reading is the sort of, you know, invention of uh, the recent times in a way. In that sense, uh, 
now, for example, for 10 or 12 last years, I'm listening to the books. I am not reading the books. I'm listening to the books and uh, I'm enriching myself much, much uh, sort of, you know, uh, more than I used to read books. Because you immediately catch the sort of, you know, the uh, uh, false uh, emotions, false logic, for example, lots of things. Uh, I'll give you an example. For example, <laughs> listening to the death of Ivan Ilyich of uh, Leo Tolstoy, <laughs> I found six or seven uh, stylistic mistakes. And I was thinking to myself that uh, Sofia Andreevna, his wife, uh, didn't listen very carefully <laughs> at these moments, you know. <laughs> yes. I, I'm very critical when I'm listening because it's a, an older skill, you know, the, which we poss possess. Uh, in that sense, it's uh, the, uh, very good to read your novel into the computer if you don't have uh, your wife, for example, who is listening and who is editing. Okay. Now, you spoke about uh, Robert Chandler. And uh, you have been very active as a translator too. So how do you think uh, the translation uh, helped you as a writer? First of all, it is an academy, you know, because you are translating usually the best of the literature, existing literature. So I used to translate the classics of uh, Uzbek literature, of Persian literature. Uh, it's the top-notch uh, literature. So you are learning the skills, you know, you are learning the trade. As one of the Uzbek writers who used to translate, one of the best Uzbek writers, Shukur uh, Holmerzaev, who used to translate Russian classics into Uzbeks, he said that uh, he is like an engineer, as uh, a mechanic, you know, uh, has been under the all kind of, uh, uh, you know, cars, you know, Mercedes, <laughs> uh, yeah, Audi, Toyota, and he learned everything, you know, like a mechanic, but by translating Dostoevsky, Chekhov, Tolstoy, and so on and so forth. So the same has happened to me. I used to translate the best of the Western literature into my language as well, into Uzbek. I used to translate Lorca, Verlaine, uh, poetry, uh, prose of the best writer. It's an academy. But it's a, a ruthless academy because uh, the more you translate, the more you understand that languages are a completely different set of tools, you know, uh, which are meant for different cultures. And as a translator, I gave up because of that, you know. But when you are becoming too good translator, you understand, the, you know, the restrictions of every language. And one of uh, your other interviews, I heard uh, you saying uh, how the way people live uh, affects the construction of the language, right? You are talking about, uh, I believe, Uzbek. Yes, uh, it's a nomadic, uh, because you are on the horse, you can't, you know, be spared by long sentences, you know, you have to be very economical because the person next to you or on the other uh, sort of side of the battlefield should be instructed exactly by a very sharp and uh, sort of, you know, brisk uh, command, let's say. And the language has developed in a certain manner. First of all, the roots of the uh, words are very short one. Every two, uh, every syllable is a word. Not just one word, but several words. For example, all. Two uh, letters, O and L. So it means read, it means, it means take, it means different things, you know, four things basically uh, all. The same, for example, with ot. Uh, it's, it's a horse, it's a name, and so on and so forth. So by context, you should understand, uh, distinguish those words, and then you are adding the suffixes which are enriching this word. For example, ish is 
work. İşçi is worker. İşçiler is workers. İşçiler ning is those uh, which uh, workers uh, which belong to workers. İşçiler must ning those uh, things which uh, belong to our workers. So you continue like that. For example, and you are shouting for example, Olubutamus, uh, which means in different language, uh, you should use force uh, for up to seven uh, words, for example. You know? A short command is immediately is understood by another person on the horse. Uh, by the way, it's a long sort of story, you know. For example, the equality of uh, genders is dictated once again by this uh, uh, feature, for example, you know. Uh, women on the horse are equal to men, you know. In that sense, we don't have in our languages, for example, the genders. Another thing is, uh, in our languages, uh, so uh, there are uh, substantive two uh, sort of, you know, uh, two personas, for example, the first person and the second person. The third person, which is beyond our sort of, you know, communication, yeah, is equal to the thing, to the thing. So he becomes a, a, a part of the world of things rather than a human being. The human being is that who is in communication with you. Once again, you know, if you are on the horse and you are seeing someone next to you, so that is the person. If you lost it, he, uh, him, he becomes part of the sort of unnamed things. Okay, and uh, most of your books uh, they have been translated into English, and uh, not by one uh, you know translator. Uh, you work with many translators. You work with uh, Donald Rayfield, for example, for this book, and uh, even the first book, The Devil's Dance, the other novel, mm, and uh, of Strangers and Bees, it was translated by uh, Shelley Fairweather Vega, I believe. Right. So, when it comes to working with translators, how do you involve with them? Is it an active collaboration, or you let them go, or how is it? Uh, because I myself translated quite a lot of literature, I know how difficult uh, it is to adapt someone's children, child, you know, and make uh, it's a, a member of your family, uh, or for example, for uh, to plant, uh, uh, you know, uh, to pl to plant uh, a, a certain tree from other places and uh, make it grow up in your garden. In that sense, uh, I am quite liberal with my translators. Generally, uh, you know, I was blessed uh, with my translators because they are the best in the field, basically. And therefore, I am uh, trusting them 100%. But when I'm needed, I'm always there to help with, uh, you know, with certain uh, tricks uh, and so on and so forth, especially with pants or languages or uh, sentences. So whenever I'm needed, I'm uh, there, but I'm not enforcing anything upon them. So they are free to do their job. I trust them. Have you ever encountered any surprising or particularly effective translations of your work? <laughs> the other way around, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't because of the translators, it was because of the uh, publisher. So in one country, uh, my uh, book, The Railway, should have been translated, and the best translators were hired to translate it. And I was spoiled by Robert Chandler, who sent me 2,000 emails, you know, while translating The Railway. I haven't received a single note from those uh, best translators uh, into another language. Uh, but I was sure that they will uh, do 
their best. And uh, on Amazon, the book appeared in full, uh, sort of, you know, 400 or so pages. But when I received the book, all of a sudden I realized that it's a half of the book. So basically, the uh, you know against the whole philosophy of the book, the publisher decided to make it a one nation book. It was about the melting pot of nations, you know, the book. But uh, the publisher decided to pick up just the so-called Uzbek. Uh, uh, chapters of that one. So that was quite a shocking experience. Uh, the book failed uh, as such, you know, and I'm blaming the publisher for that one because it was completely against the philosophy of the book. The novel that we are talking about, Manaschi, mm, it is about identity, cultural identity. Mm. Certain part of it, at least. Now, after the division of USSR, uh, Uzbekistan and all was part of uh, USSR earlier. Now, after the division of uh, USSR, uh, what is the effect it had on uh, one's own national identity and how these different countries are coping up with it? So one should tell that uh, this independence was granted, not earned or conquered, you know. So basically it uh, fell upon uh, the Central Asian countries because the Slavonic countries, they decided to get out of the Soviet Union and disbanded it. Yeah. So basically uh, Central Asian countries, they've been granted this independence. Uh, in a way, uh, they turned into the kind of fiefdoms, you know, the, the autocratic ones. All of them, they turned into autocratic fiefdoms. Uh, rather than a modern uh, developing state. So that is the political side of it. As for the cultural side, it's strange. You know, on the one hand, yes, uh, independence is a blessing. But at the same time, I start to notice that, uh, you know, because there is no resistance to any other culture, yeah, so the culture becomes sort of uh, without any shows in a way, without self-identification. Uh, during the Soviet time, the culture of, uh, let's say, of Uzbeks, of Kyrgyz, was so sort of, you know, Uzbekized and uh, Kyrgyzized or Kazakhized against the Russian rule, against the Russian uh, sort of resisting the Russian influences, you know. It was more authentic because it was against something. Now there is no this uh, factor being against something and therefore culture is all over the place you know it goes the right side it goes the left side so identity uh, in a way is uh, uh, has been uh, lost basically uh, in a way in a way mm, so as for the uh, writing for example once again Every kind of writing is entering now, all kind of schools are existing, but when you compare to the sort of, you know, level of writing in Uzbek or in Kazakh or in uh, uh, Kyrgyz, so those the so-called Soviet Kyrgyz writers like uh, Chinggis Aitmatov or Kazakh uh, Soviet writers like Muhtar Awezov or, or Uzbek uh, Soviet writers like Cholpan or Gafur Gulam, they are still way ahead, you know, in their stylistic and their skills of using language in every department of the literature, basically. Now, the Manaschi, the novel, uh, it showcases the art of uh, oral storytelling. In India, too, we have a long tradition of uh, oral storytelling. Our epics like Mahabharata and Ramayana, even our ancient uh, sacred texts, Vedas, are passed on across generations through this method. Could you please describe the oral storytelling culture in Central Asia? 
Central Asia is uh, generally is divided between uh, historically nomadic people and settled people. It it's a cross uh, road of the Silk Road, you know, of the civilizations. It's the place where the kind of Indian, Chinese, Asian culture meets the Persian culture, European culture, and so on and so forth. It's a place of mixture of everything. In that sense, uh, so uh, in both uh, in both facets of the, this culture, in nomadic and in sedentary culture, there were great examples of uh, storytelling, of oral storytelling. If you take, for example, the sedentary culture, many people they forget that uh, you know the famous One Thousand and One Night was told in <laughs> in India to the uh, to the to the uh, you know to the Shah of Samarkand. So basically, it's rooted in Central Asia with the so-called Mughals, in a way. Uh, that is one tradition. The second tradition is the nomadic tradition. And Manas, for example, as an epic, is the biggest epic of the world. It's uh, 48 or 50 times longer than uh, Iliad and uh, uh, Odyssey of Homer, etc., etc. It's the longest, longest human-created uh, epic, which consists of 2 million verses. So you can imagine, in that sense, in that sense, obviously, being a Central Asian, you know, I have some debts to my ancestors in a way to continue these traditions, you know, both sedentary and nomadic one. So because from the very childhood, I was exposed to these traditions. Uh, it's in my blood and uh, it's in my uh, sort of uh, skin in a way. And therefore, in my novels, for example, I try to develop it further, to modernize it, to make it appealing to the modern uh, readers and uh, listeners. So in that sense, I'm using all these techniques in my writing. So now the Manas, the epic, is it part of uh, traditional Islam? They've Islamized it, pre-Islamic, in fact. It's pre-Islamic, but, but uh, you know, as with any epics which lasts over the centuries, they Islamized it because uh, Manas all of a sudden turned into a kind of prophet and missionary uh, who turned uh, different, different people into Islam. Uh, conquered them and started to turn into Islam. But generally speaking, it's a kind of museum of uh, nomadic culture or oral museum of nomadic culture in all its richness. So it's about the traditions, it's about the rituals, it's about everything in your life, you know, with some prescriptions, what to do in a certain situation. Basically, it's a compendium of uh, the knowledge of nomadic people of Central Asia. It uh, happens not just with Islam, with any world religion. You know, for example, if you take Christianity, so uh, certain people, they've adopted this Christianity for their own needs. For example, uh, English people in uh, Anglicanism, let's say, uh, the Germans in Protestantism, and so on and so forth, you know. Uh, so the same is with Islam. For example, Sufism of Central Asia is the adaptation of Islam to the local culture. To the local culture. The same happens with, uh, for example, Chishtiya in India. The local sort of singing, dancing is becoming part of Islam. Or the you know experience of Akbar Shah or Darashukuh bringing the local culture into kind of Islam, yeah, enriching it with local color and with local traditions, rituals. So it's always uh, the way to adapt the world religion to the local needs. Now, uh, when it comes to the novel, specific details of the novel, um, there are. Uh, a lot of episodes with the tumor, the eagle, right? 
where the where Bekel and uh, Dapan uh, they spend a lot of time with humor. These episodes are very very detailed. The normally we see human to writing about human to human interaction in a detailed way, uh, it can be imagined. But the kind of uh, interactions uh, that you depicted between the bird and the man, unless you experience it, I felt uh, writing it uh, in such a detailed and lovely manner would have been very very difficult. Have you met eagle hunters? Have you spent time? my got the uh, childhood uh, it's the experience of my childhood you know got i was brought up by my grand uh, great grand uh, father on the horse you know i do remember that he was uh, tying me up to his uh, gown you know uh, to his back uh, on the horse and then we would go to the you know hunters to the uh, so called shaitan koprike which is the devil's uh, bridge you know we would cross uh, between the uh, you know between the mountains uh, <laughs> Uh, very very fable bridge you know, which is to, to be called the devil's bridge so all these uh, experiences are in my mind in my memory uh, yes the relationship of uh, those people with uh, eagles with their horses as well uh, unfortunately, we are losing this tradition. Unfortunately, uh, less and less people are sort of, you know, uh, relating to... It's becoming an exoticism rather than the mode of life. To take this story forward, the way it is constructed, the novel, it's a multi-strand narration. There is a story running in the present and uh, there is Manas uh, rendition and there are Baisal tapes and... Uh, Again, other character talking about uh, Baisal's life, his wife, uh, etc. And again, Sattar's uh, parables. So, every one of these, in their own way, they take the story forward. So, this multi-strand narration, is it a conscious choice to tell the story in this way or did it evolve as you went along? Generally, though I am saying that everything is done uh, during the summertime, everything is prepared, but generally speaking, writing is unconscious uh, uh, process. Then you start to rationalize after you've written, you know, you start to understand what you've written in a way. But... Uh, you are de developing your thoughts which are in your mind, in your unconsciousness, but there is some impulse which is the primary for this particular novel. For me, for example, if I uh, um, try to go to the core of this novel, it's about the, you know, it's about the false prophethood. I think so, because that was the initial, the primary impulse, you know. Uh, what happens to a person who is not sure, is he a prophet or not prophet? Because uh, our life around is full of this kind of uh, false, uh, you know, promises, false uh, roles, you know, when journalists are becoming politicians and presidents or prime ministers and so on and so forth. Lots of things are based on these false prophethoods. And that was the primary, I think. And what you confront it with, with different sort of, you know, uh, uh, with different sides, with different point of views, with different uh, narratives in a way. Uh, because you have to see this particular person from different sides, in different situations, in different sort of, you know, uh, facets. Maybe that was the leading idea which uh, made me sort of, you know, uh, give voices to different people. But generally speaking, generally speaking, uh, I am a kind of, you know, uh, supporter at all writer of the novels with lots of voices. For example, uh, The Railway, 
the number of characters, you know, even I don't remember all the names of the characters in it. And everyone has got his or her own story. So, uh, you know, to give the voice to those people who don't have their voice is one of the missions, I think, of a writer in Central Asia because they are so autocratic, you know, they are so mono-voiced societies that you have to give the voice to different people. Therefore, I have created even the circle of writers consisting of many, many sort of, you know, uh, pseudonyms or getteronyms or what are heteronyms, uh, the circle of writers giving power to different people rather than to myself, not becoming the sort of, you know, the shadow of this autocracy in my world of writing. Wonderful, wonderfully put. Now, um... Chekbel, the village where uh, most of the action happens, uh, it's an interesting place. Uh, it, it is separated by a stream. And on one side, uh, there is Tajikistan and the other side, you have Kyrgyzstan. And in Tajikistan, you have a Kyrgyz settlement. And in uh, Kyrgyzstan, uh, you have a Tajik, uh, Tajik settlement. And Bekesh himself is of the mixed descent. His father is Kyrgyz and his mother is Tajik. This blurred identity, fluid identity, and again you have one more character, mm, is uh, Ulanku, I believe, is a Mongolian who wants to be Kyrgyz. <laughs> right? So, <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what exactly you are trying to convey? You know. <laughs> One of uh, the best writers of Russia of last, uh, I don't know, 50 years, Andrei Bitov once famously said, you know, what I'm inventing, everyone considers to be absolute true. What I'm writing from the reality, everything thinks, uh, everyone thinks that I'm inventing, you know. <laughs> so basically, you know, Chekbel is existing place in a way. There are places like that in Central Asia. Uh, there are people like Bekesh in Central Asia. So it's not so much an invention. But the identity is an interesting thing, you know. Mm. I'll refer to my uh, DNA analysis. Uh, in my fifth uh, sort of, you know, generation cousins, there is every nation of the world. I am saying it sort of loudly, every nation of the world. You name and I'll find the name with the name, with the personality, my fifth or uh, sixth cousin. So after that one, including Indian, Bangladeshis, Chinese, Koreans, Jews, uh, Arabs, uh, Poles, uh, Czechs, Spanish, Greeks, you name it, Turks, you name it. So after that one, what kind of pure nations we can talk? So, you know, uh, make DNA analysis and everyone will find everything in their blood, you know. So, it's, we know that it's a social construct, you know, belonging. It's exactly the same thing which, for example, in the railway, Obit uh, Kore wants to become an Uzbek, you know. Uh, all his life, he uh, wants to become an Uzbek, and he, uh, by Stalinian, uh, you know, police, KGB, he killed as an Uzbek, being a Kyrgyz, you know. So he reached his uh, dream uh, with the price of his death, basically. Should should have he done that? Should have he uh, uh, not uh, done it? So that is the question, you know. So all of us, they want 
on the one hand, to belong to a certain nation, to certain religion, to certain family, to certain descendancy, and so on and so forth. On the other hand, there is a strong conviction in every person to become something else as well. You know, in England, I'm dying to understand what the British person or what the English person uh, is thinking or doing or whatever. I want to become one of them, you know. In Czech Republic, I want to become, I study Czech uh, language. I want to become, uh, for a minute, them as well. There is this uh, human interest always, you know, to belong at the same time to break the belonging, to break free from belonging. Remember the Queen's song, you know, to break free. So there is always this struggle within the person, which is a nice struggle, you know, a nice struggle, which brings people together. That's why you are talking to me to understand something from my experiences. Therefore, I'm talking to you to understand uh, some experiences of your culture, of your life. That brings us together, you know. So therefore, uh, maybe uh, that is about that one. In uh, certain sentences in the novel, I found them uh, very, very profound. For example, when you are talking about Manasji, you said that he can see the future, he can get into the past, he can conjure fantastic things and situations and see the unknown. Uh, are you talking about the writer? Is writer is also like a manasthi, a creative writer? I think so. I think so. I think so. The, the, basically, therefore, uh, if I think about my novels, so basically, I'm talking always about storytellers. These are the stories of storytellers, in a way. Uh, when I'm saying storytellers, they might be the professional storytellers like Manasci, but they might be unknown storytellers, you know. Storytellers, they don't know that they are storytellers. One of the main functions of the human kind in this world is storytelling, you know. Even the uh, hereafter prepares us to tell our story of this life, you know. So basically, you are going to the exam to the God, you know, with your story, what you've done, what you've seen, what you've uh, heard, you know. So basically, <laughs> as they say in different religions, we'll be given the, the book of our deeds, you know, in one and then we'll be telling our story in hereafter too. So basically, in that sense, we are sent to this world as storytellers, basically, to bring our stories back to the Creator. So, uh, therefore, storytelling is one of the main functions of uh, humankind. Your novel, your novels mostly, they have a mystical aspect too in the novel when you write, especially this novel. Have you had any kind of such mystic experiences? The reason I asked you this question, you talked about a, a fox coming into the garden as you were writing the other novel and it disappears as soon as you complete your novel. Yes, that's true. Yeah, uh, the, my wife could uh, uh, confirm it too because she was witnessing the same. And there are plenty of things which, uh, uh, when you are attentive to the details, you start to notice. Uh, I had uh, uh, several instances, you know, unbelievable in terms of logic, in terms of uh, rational thinking, but which happened, which happened. So I've got these kind of stories which I used in my uh, novels. So I was in the military school. Uh, I was young in military school and uh, we were working in uh, the woods, you know, uh, sort of in the woods during the summertime. Uh, but uh, at the same time, I used to, uh, you know, help my commander to write his essays because my commander was studying at the university. 
And uh, he received an excellent mark for one of the essays which I wrote for him. And therefore, he was so happy. He said, what do you want? You can go to your sort of vacation two weeks earlier. I said, yeah, it's all right. I'll go. So I went to the vacation and I came to Tashkent. In Tashkent, I was uh, planning to go to my uh, relatives to Bishkek, to Kyrgyzstan. But in the museum, I saw a picture of Karahan, uh, which reminded me uh, the village of my grandmother. Uh, there was a tree with one uh, last leaf on it, yeah, the autumn tree. And I immediately felt so strong, uh, the sort of feeling of this village where my grandmother lives. So I decided to go there. Overnight, I went there. In the morning, I reached this uh, mountainous village and came to my grandmother's house, which was closed. I uh, came uh, over the fence, you know, and uh, sat at the uh, grandmother's house. Uh, ate fruits and so on and so forth. My grandmother wasn't there. And I thought that maybe my uh, father, who was divorced from my mother because my mother died, you know, uh, he married another woman. So, and therefore I didn't want to go to my uh, father's house, but uh, stayed with my grandmother. I thought that my grandmother is at some kind of party or wedding at my father's. And reluctantly, I decided to go to my father's house to get my grandmother and come back to her house. And at the turn of the street, I noticed a crowd in front of uh, my father's house. And I thought, yes, I was right. There is a wedding party or something like that there. So lots of people and my grandmother should be there. And I entered. And at that time, everyone says, Allahu Akbar, and took the, you know, uh, the uh, dead body of my, basically, of my grandmother. Uh, and I joined the procession to the cemetery, you know, and put her into the soil. And then all my uh, relatives said that her wish was, I won't die. I won't go into the uh, sort of, you know, tomb before my grandson comes here. And it took me from Kaliningrad, which is the, you know, the other end of the Soviet Union, to the mountainous village, to the sort of, you know, funeral of my grandmother. How do you explain it? How do you explain, you know, two weeks before, so commander allowed me, I went to Tashkent, I was planning to go different side, but I got to, went to the museum, I saw this picture, so everything was sort of guiding me towards my grandmother's funeral. And that was her wish, that was her wish. And she was a very strong and uh, sort of very pious character, you know. I described her in uh, my novel, you know, The Railway. So if people are interested in her uh, spiritual powers, they can read about that. What is the next novel that is going to, next novel of yours, which is going to get published? Uh, so next year, hopefully, uh, Yale University Press is publishing my novel, which is called, uh, you know, I don't know how it will be called in uh, English, but it's about the artificial intelligence versus Hafez. It's an interesting novel, very interesting novel. It was written before the uh, hype about the artificial intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> but in a way, you mean to say that's a translation? Yes, translation. Yes, and the German publishing house, Maton uh, Zainz, uh, will publish my uh, hyper novel, Russian Matryoshka, Russian Doll, which consists of six novels in one. You know these Russian dolls, which are inside of each other. 
So uh, this kind of uh, composition of six novels. The novel uh, Manasci it uh, touches on various themes, themes of cultural identity, heritage, um, and uh, preserving some traditional art forms in the modern world. As a writer, what would you like your readers to contemplate after reading your novel? Uh, with Manasci, I would like to uh, my reader to contemplate about this false prophethood, you know, because there are too many of them uh, in a modern world. Uh, you know, all this uh, populism, for example, is growing up on these false prophethoods. Uh, all this uh, propaganda is about false prophethood. Uh, all these fake news are about the false prophethoods. It's one of the biggest issues of the modern world. So maybe one of the things which they can uh, look uh, uh, at this novel is this particular idea, you know, the danger of this particular idea. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Hamid, for your time. It has been wonderful listening to you talking about, uh, you know, your life and uh, your creative process of writing and uh, Of course, Manasi, thank you very much. Thank you for your interest.